Before we enter the study of his word, um, let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you that we can sing songs of rejoicing, not because, Lord, we in ourselves are good and because we have earned our salvation, but, Lord, because you have saved those who are helpless, those who were once worthless, who could not serve you, who could not glorify you. But in your grace, Lord, you have made us your own so that we might live to your praise and to your glory. Lord, as we come to your word this evening, I pray, Lord, that you would open our ears, Lord. May we hear the word of God, and Lord, may we live in accord with it so that we might honor you with our lives, so that we might glorify our great Savior, Jesus Christ, because he is worthy of it. I pray, Lord, for your spirit, Lord, moving among us. I pray, Lord, that you'd help me, God, to preach the word with boldness, God, and that you'd lead me as I speak to speak the word that you have put out for us. And I pray, God, for every mind there, Lord, and every heart. I pray, God, that you'd be working in our hearts, God, so that we might be conformed to the likeness of Christ, so that we might glorify you in every aspect of our lives, Lord, so that we might praise you for you are deserving of it. In Jesus' name, amen. If this is your first time here um, with us this evening, or if you perhaps are just lost in this series, or perhaps you just forgot everything that we've been preaching about for the past few weeks, tonight is a good night to be here because you come to a summary of much of what Paul has been speaking about in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Tonight in 1 Corinthians, um, chapter 7, verse 36 to 38, we come to a concise summary of Paul's teachings on marriage and singleness. But before we get into the specifics of that this evening, I thought I would remind us of the parable that Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 25. It is the parable of the talents. And in this parable, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's teaching about, though, he's teaching about the members who are truly of the kingdom of heaven and those who perhaps seem for a moment to be part of it and then are truly not. Well, what happens in this parable is that a, a man, an owner of much property, is going away for a long season of time. There are three servants who are left to guard and watch over his property and hopefully to earn and grow his possession. To one servant, this owner gave five talents, and a talent is equivalent to 20 years' worth of a labor's wage, so it's quite a big portion. He is given five talents. The second servant is given two talents, and the last servant is given one talent. And they are to invest this and, and try and grow the funds and the finances of their owner while he is away. One day, their owner returns from his long journey, and he comes to see what his servants have done for him in his absence. The first servant who received five talents comes and tells his master that he has doubled that which he has given. He now has ten talents, and he gives that to his master, and his master is well pleased with him. The second servant is the same. His, the money that he got has grown from two to four talents, and his master is well pleased with him. Yet we come to the last servant, the one who received one talent. 
He shamefully took that talent, buried it in the ground, and hid it until his master's return. And at his master's return, he, he brought it and said, take what is yours. His master was enraged at this. Why? Because while the other two served him humbly in his absence, this other one took no heed to his word and had no love for his master to serve him in his absence. So, it is a rather strange and perhaps confusing introduction to this sermon on marriage and singleness, but I hope that throughout this sermon we will see what this parable implies for us tonight. I've titled tonight's sermon as Glorifying God with, with Your Gifting, where we'll see how God desires to use the gifts that He has given us, whether it be the gift of marriage or the gift of singleness, to His glory while He is in heaven and waiting to return. To begin, let us read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, from verses 25 to 38. Now, Concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman married, marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who, live, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now for the text this evening. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do better, even better. So tonight, as we look at these verses, as I've already said, we find a concise summary of much of what Paul has been saying about singleness and marriage. From this text, I want to bring forth two points and then three applications at the end. The first point for this evening is the case where you should marry. Verse 36 reads, If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. 
Let them marry. It is not sin. In the original Greek text, when we look at this verse, we see that at the beginning of it, it begins with a but or a however. That is to show that he is contrasting what he has previously said in the verses before. Well, what was Paul saying before in verses 32 to 35? He was showing in those verses that the unmarried person has great value and has a great advantage because they don't have the anxieties of that a, that a married man would have in life. They have no wife to please. They would have no kids to look after. They would be able to be more financially um, fluid because they don't have to care for other people. But, says Paul, however, says Paul, there is one case where he believes that it is better for you to marry than not to marry, even though it is a great advantage to not marry. Well, what is it then? What is this case? That case is, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, and if his passions are strong. Paul is quite plainly telling us that if you are struggling with sexual temptations, if you're struggling to kill the lust of the heart toward another, that in this case, it probably means that you have the gift of marriage. If you're behaving inappropriately in mind or deed toward a brother or sister in Christ, God has definitely not given you the gift of singleness. Yes, any ungodly and sinful lusts of the flesh are not a gift from God. Only the right and appropriate desire for marriage union is that good gift from God. Yet, the, the, the ungodly and sinful lusts of the flesh reveal that God has not taken away that desire for sexual intimacy, which is only to be found in marriage. Therefore, Paul says in chapter 7, verse 2, that a person should have a spouse so they may not fall into sexual immorality. Plainly, he is saying that if you are drawn towards sexual immorality, you don't have the gift of singleness, and therefore you should probably seek to marry in the future. To forcefully restrain oneself from marriage and to forcefully restrain oneself from this calling is both foolish and sinful. It is as Paul said in verses 6 and 7 of this chapter. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. If you have these desires for marriage, it is, not so, it is not something to be ashamed about. God has blessed you with this gift. Whether it is marriage or singleness, it has come from God. The evidence that you are blessed with the gift of marriage is that you are inclined to marriage. It is, in, it is that you are inclined toward a marriage union with another person according to God's will. Paul says that these passions, these inclinations, have to be there. He says it has to be so. There must be a sense where there's this unmistakable need to get married or else you would fall into sinful lusts and temptations. For God would rather have you be single if you could resist the passions of the flesh. 
If you could resist the passions of the flesh, then you should remain single. But if you cannot, if there's necessity upon your heart that unless I do this, I shall sin against God, then do it. You see, only if you have strong passions for God, good godly intimacy that is to be expressed in marriage, that is, that is to be expressed in marriage should you marry. It has to be so. But also, this is not to say that marriage is the only thing that warrants marriage. It is not to say that if you have lusts, just go for it. We must also apply the other passages in the Bible that talk to this. But if this text is clearly telling us that only if you have this passion should you even begin considering whether you should seek to marry or not. Paul finishes his address to the married, uh, to, to the married, to those who are seeking to be married, by saying that they ought to marry. Those who want to marry should marry, for it is a God-given desire upon their heart to do so. If you have the gift of marriage, it is evidenced by a godly desire for marriage. Do so. You are not transgressing God. So, I said at the beginning that there is one specific case where it is better to marry than not to marry. What is that case? That case is if it would lead to your complete and undivided devotion to God by leading the life to which you were called. If God has called you to be a married man or woman and to glorify Him in that space, then it, it is best that you do that, for that is what He's called you to. That is the one case where you ought to marry if that would lead to your full, undivided devotion to God. Now, looking at the parable that I mentioned earlier, how does that relate to this? We see that, both, we see that the first two servants were given five and two talents each. Why was the one given five and the other two? Well, I don't know. But what we do know is that they were given gifts, and they used whatever gift they had received to the glory of their master. In the same way, God has given you either the gift of singleness or the gift of marriage, and you ought to use that gift to His glory and to His praise. The second point for this evening is the case where it is better to remain unmarried. Once more, Paul does not introduce any new, exciting information. He has covered this already in the, in, throughout this chapter, but he concisely sums up his teaching on the matter of singleness. Verse 37 reads, But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Paul once more gives us a contrast between the case where it is better to marry and where it is better to remain single. As with the previous point, in what case does Paul say that it is better to, to be a single person rather than married? Well, he says, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control. This is the person that should remain single, the one who is not at severe risk of falling to the lusts of the flesh towards sexual immorality if he were not to marry. Paul says that those who do not have the strong, innate, God-given drive toward marriage, then in his wisdom, it is best for them to remain single. 
In similar fashion to the first point, if one is gifted with singleness or celibacy, they will not have the necessity for marriage that, as they would have, as they would not have the God-given desire for marriage if they are truly gifted with celibacy. It is quite clear that there's an obvious distinction between the two. For one, it is necessity for marriage. For if I do not, I dishonor my Lord. But to the other, there is no necessity, and they can serve God more fully without distraction, as Mark preached about last week, to his glory in a way that a married man cannot do. So why does Paul go through such great lengths to explain why we need to know whether we are gifted with, with marriage or singleness? Why is it a matter that affects him and wants him to tell us what we ought to do? Why can we not just do whatever we wish to do? Again, the logic is very similar to the previous point. I believe that Paul has set before us that God is not so much concerned about which gift he has given you, that's up to him in the first place, but so long as that whatever gift you do have, you apply yourself to it and glorify yourself in it. If you have been given, if you have been given five talents, use those five talents to his glory. If you have been given two talents, use that to your glory to his glory, sorry. If you have been given the gift of marriage, glorify God as much as you can in that space, and, the, and vice versa for, single, for singleness. Therefore, if you are one whose passions are not binding upon, upon your heart, and it does not put you at serious risk of sexual immorality, it is clear that God has given you the ability, the gift, not to marry. This is very crucial because Paul tells us that the unmarried man can serve the Lord and be undividedly devoted to him. God desires to have married and single people in his kingdom laboring for his glory, for they both labor yet in different ways. It is an honorable thing to be single. Do not let the world tell you which, what, that which is good, do not let your friends tell you what is good. Do not let your, your own desire to control your own life tell you which is good. The gift that God has given you is good, and you ought to live with that in mind. If this is truly a gift from God, why would you want to shy away from it? If God has called you to be single, be single to the glory of Jesus Christ. Use the added time, use the freedom, use the lack of responsibilities so that you can serve him in a way that no man who is married or woman can. God does not care about what the world thinks, but that you serve him faithfully with all your might. Chapter 7, verse 24 reads, So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, Paul was not applying this to marriage and singleness, but he was saying, what, but the principle is that if God has called you to a certain place, to a certain space, to a certain calling, then you ought to live in that calling. Don't try and change the situation you are in to suit your own desires. Simply abide in the providential hand of God, knowing that it is good. In all this, what shall we say? Paul says, 
So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Simply put, if this is all very confusing to you, Paul says that marriage is good and singleness is good. But it is good to the person to whom it has been gifted. If you have been gifted for marriage, it is good that you marry. If you have been gifted to singleness, it is good that you are single. They both do honorably. They both glorify Christ. Yet, I think again, Paul is trying to emphasize and trying to highlight to a world that is often obsessed with marriage that it is, it is often better to be single than to marry. So what applications can we draw from this passage? This is rather perhaps abstract at this moment in time, but what can we do to apply this text practically and daily in our lives? The first application is to examine your gifting. I hope and pray that tonight has made it clear that both gifts from God are good, one of one kind and one of another. God only gives good gifts, and if you have received one, do not be ashamed of it. I believe that what we ought to do in light of this passage is to truly examine our own hearts. Has God called me to a life of singleness or to a life where I would be married? It is important to know which God has called us toward. For if we neglect the calling of God upon our lives, we do not submit to Him as Lord, and we transgress His will for our lives. Let us be careful to look at this. Let us not only merely glaze over it and think quickly about it, be like, nah, I want it. No. Really pray about it, wrestle on it, meditate upon the scriptures about it, examine the evidence of your own life which to, to which you have been called. And in all of this, do not lie to yourself. Often we have this idea of what we want to be true, yet it is not true. Be careful not to lie to yourselves. Do not let your desire control your life when it is God's life. Do not become bondservants of men, whether it even be yourself, your friends, or even the culture we live in. You serve Christ first. Examine why you want to stay, why you want to marry or stay single. Is it that you might glorify God in those spaces? If you are dating, ooh, Talama's, no, Talama's not going to be happy. If you're special friends, if you're special friends, <laughs> if you're special friends, Examine why you are special friends. Are you special friends because God has put necessity upon your heart to be married one day? Or are you special friends because it's vibes, it's nice, it's enjoyable? Why are you dating? Is it for the glory of God? Is it because it is God's gifting upon your life? In all these things, let us consider what is most honorable to our Lord. Secondly, and it's been emphasized throughout the whole the whole sermon, I hope. Whatever gift God has given you, it is, it is so that you might worship Him and glorify Him fully. He has not given you a gift that will cause you to not worship Him more. He has given you gifts that will, that will work toward your sanctification and toward your worship of His glorious name. Let us remember, even as we were singing earlier on in the sermon, that Christ has saved us. If Christ has truly saved us, 
if He is truly our Lord, if we have truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good and He is worthy of our complete and utter devotion, let us be careful to make sure that we do that which He wants. For our lives have been bought with a price. We no longer belong to ourselves, but to Him who has saved us. Glorify Him, not only in marriage and singleness, but in whatever it is that you do. The third point, and I've simply titled this one, The Third Servant, or this is addressed more correctly to the unbeliever. The third servant in that parable that Jesus was speaking about was called a worthless servant at the end of it. He did not honor his master. He did not work for him. In the same way, every person to ever exist has had the obligation to worship and serve God, for He has made them for that purpose, to submit and serve Him. As a result of this servant's disobedience and of his lackluster performance, he is called worthless because he did not serve his master. In the same way, we are called worthless because of our sinfulness. Romans 3 verse 12 says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We are completely and utterly worthless. Vanity of vanities is the very explanation of our lives. What is the point of our lives if we are a worthless servant? Not only are we worthless, but on account of our disobedience to serving our master with wholehearted submission, we will be judged. For we have sinned against him, and all those who fall short of the glory of God will be judged, and the wage of that judgment is death, like the worthless servant who was cast out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is the lot for every person to ever live on this planet Earth besides Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfectly righteous, God-honoring, God-fearing life in complete accord with the will of the Father for Him. He had no sin, yet we know that He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, if you wish to be a useful servant to God, you cannot do so until you have come to Christ. For Christ is the one who perfectly obeyed the Father. He is the one that we look to to see what obedience is to the Father. And we must first turn to Him in faith and believe upon Him to be saved of our sins and saved and born again so that we might have a new heart a heart that is no longer inclined to death, to the things of this world, but that is inclined to the service of our God. Have you received Christ? Have you believed in Him? Are you still a worthless servant that can never, ever do anything of any worth in this life? If that be the case, first turn to Jesus Christ, and He can make you new and He can save you from your sins, and He can make you useful to the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Dear Lord, 
God, you are worthy of our praise. And Lord, that is why we come here on Sundays, to praise you and to worship you. But Lord, we confess that often our desires are not your desires. Often our will for our lives is not your will for our lives. I do pray, God, that, Lord, anybody that was in error on this point, God, who perhaps was leading a life to which you had not called them, that tonight, Lord, they'd realize that and that they'd turn away from that transgression and live, God, in gladness to what you have called them to. I pray, Heavenly Father, for those, Lord, who perhaps still walk in darkness, Lord, who have no hope. I pray, Lord God, that they would see, God, that they are in desperate need of Christ, Lord, that they are utterly worthless at this moment in time until they believe on you. Please, God, would you help us this week to live in obedience to you, to examine our hearts, to do all to your glory in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.